Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like to take you to the context of the Gospel of John, John chapter 16, and we're going to look at verses 16 through verse 33. I know it's a big uh, bite of the apple today, but I believe we can, we can do it and still get out in time for halftime at the Super Bowl. No, we'll be done earlier than that. So let me tell you where this is all happening. Jesus has uh, recently, very recently, left the upper room and he's walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane. He's got 11 of his guys with him because one's run off to betray him, as you well know, Judas, those of you who know the story. So while he's going, he's doing all of this teaching, 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 teaching. The unique thing is, is that at the end of today, what we're going to study, that's the last of his teaching before he goes to the cross. So you're getting the very last of it. We could almost call it a deathbed declaration. And interesting, he's speaking about joy. Now, because he is God, he knew the end from the beginning. He knew he was going to go to the cross before man ever fell, all right? So he knew all of this. So now he's walking, in a sense, toward the most painful, excruciating time of his life, even to the point that God the Father momentarily would have to step aside from the Son when all the sin of all the world would be placed on Christ and he died. He's going into that. He knew he was going to go into that. Now, you and I, we don't know what our next day is going to be like. We don't know what's going to happen next. We had this great conversation with Joe. We ended with a wonderful time of prayer, and I love yous and all of that, and it was great. Two hours later, I get a text from him, and he says, Dad, I want you to know that I have been rear-ended, and the car is totaled, and God is already teaching me lessons, and he stated three lessons that he learned, and that's not even our conversation. I mean, that's just a little text you get. So my response was first. What do you think my response was? Praise the Lord. Was anyone hurt? And I guess this is the dad in me, and you're glad that I'm not your dad. And I said, those are great three lessons. What other lessons did you learn? (laughs) That's the dad in me, all right? And he fired back, because I was looking for one particular for him. It was the word responsibility. The car was towed. They lost their car. It was an old car. Once you get it where the airbags come out and the windshield gets cracked, it's pretty well towed. And... That's going to be a real challenge to them. So I want you to know that um, when you speak on joy and you begin to own this before the Lord, it is possible that the Lord is going to test you. He's not going to try to bring you down. He's going to try to test you to see, is it authentic joy? Now watch this. Joy comes from Christ. The fruit of the Spirit, part of it, a fruit, is joy. And I'm going to be making the case today, maybe a little veiled, but it'll be there, that God and the Holy Spirit are one through actually the concept even of the teaching of joy. We made so much of the case that God and Christ are, are one. I want to make the case today of Christ and the Holy Spirit are one. That's all part of the joy experience. So we're going through this with Joe. We called him and talked to his wife and him and prayed and all that kind of stuff as you would well do. Don't have an answer about all the practical stuff except right now he needs to experience, as we all would when we go through these tough times, how are we going to use this for the glory of God? All right, now let's go back to this. So Jesus is walking away. He's walking towards now the the garden. He's teaching these guys these last bit of lessons. As I went back, I found that it really began at chapter 13 when he was at the Lord's Supper, and now we're at chapter 
16 here, and he leaves and he begins to do this teaching. My best guess, and this is Ponzism, I can't prove it, but I think the best guess is this conversation took probably about 30 to 45 minutes to have as he was going. Remember, Lord's Supper all the way to Gethsemane and boom, now you get, you get into this, he's being arrested and then goes to the trial, so the time isn't very long, so I'm thinking maybe 30 to 45 minutes. But what Jesus is about to do, knowing he's going through his own issue that he has to do, he's preparing the guys to know that they too, because they're going to represent Christ for the rest of their life and to launch the church, the New Testament church, he had to prepare them. He had about 45 minutes to do it. I know it's built on maybe three years, but 45. That tells me that these guys had a revolutionary change in their thinking. And you will see it in the passage if we have time to get there. How all of a sudden it was like the veil lifted and they were starting to get it. Now why am I telling you that? That means in whatever time I might have left with you all that it's the Lord and the Spirit. I may be the, the communicator, but it's the Lord and the Spirit, using the word right here, that could change your life in 40 to 45 minutes in the whole concept of joy. Now these guys let let him do it. They, they repented, changed their thinking. All right? Maybe we need to do the same to maybe change some of our thinking. And I will say it will still be a lifelong lesson. We're all going to learn about having this kind of joy. Now as a side little anecdote, the word joy is found eight times in the Gospel of John. Oddly though, in just this short passage, it's found four times. And so it's kind of like he's preparing us to face life with joy, and it gives us a vitamin tablet right at the end of his life here on this earth so we would know what it would mean to have that kind of joy. I'd like now, if you don't mind, to open up our passage of Scripture starting at verse 16 and give you how to have authentic joy. Now, you'll notice in your notes, those of you that have notes, those of you that are listening on the radio don't, but there's going to be three main points. I'm giving you three so you have three legs like a, a milk stool, like an old dairy cow milker, you know, three legs. But I don't want to reduce it to three. It could be 30 principles in here. These are three observations that I'm making about how to have joy. And I'm reducing it to three only to make it easier for you to remember. But I don't want you to think these are the only three. I don't want to put you underneath a little formula. I want you to just know that there's a lot of observations in here. These are three. So let's look at number one. The first thing we need to know about joy is we need to recognize God's process. That there is a process that we often go through in beginning our understanding of what God is all about and his relationship to joy in our life. So let's begin reading at verse 16 and see what it says. First of all, it says, A little while, Jesus is speaking here, A little while and you will no longer see me. And again in a little while you will see me. And some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he's telling us? A little while? And you will not see me. A little while you will see me. You won't see me. Because he goes to the Father. I, I don't get all of this stuff they're saying. So they're saying, what is this that he is saying? We just don't follow it. We don't know what he's talking about. So when you begin to approach life, and you're beginning to understand about joys, it sets it all up. There's going to be confusion. And that's going to be my first word down there, that it is going to be confusing for you. I gave you the backdrop of it earlier that as we look at our life and we're trying to figure out all joy and figure out what's happening, we don't understand everything. In this context, Jesus is saying, I'm with you, then I won't be with you. Now, the reason they're having some struggle is because they already knew that Jesus was going to be with them and then he was going to die and rise again from the dead. But what does this mean, I'll be with you and I won't be with you? There are two explanations and I'm going to tell you the one that I believe this is saying. 
One is, remember, Jesus is about to go to the cross, so they see him. Then he's going to die. They'll place him into a tomb for approximately three days, you know, then he rises again. And then he's seen again after the resurrection, but before the ascension. So is that saying that you see me now, then you won't see me, then you'll see me again? I personally, as much as it sounds good to believe that, I don't embrace that teaching, at least as much as my study is at this many years. I may change later on, but right now, this is what I believe it to be. I believe the veiled is, you don't see me, or you see me, you won't see me, but you will see me again, watch this now, when the Holy Spirit comes after I finally leave. Now, part of my argument for that is this, because here it says that you won't ask me any questions. If it meant that you'd see him after the resurrection, we have proof in Scripture that they did ask him questions, so that would make Jesus a liar there. The other time it says, when I go to my father, when he died and he rose again from the resurrection, we don't see him going to the father yet, but we do see him going to the father at the ascension, and he went to the father, and you would see him again when the Holy Spirit would be present. Then as you continue through this passage, you're going to see that they didn't have joy, and then later on they did have joy, and it was wrapped up around the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I said veiled because you're having to read a lot of those implications in there. It's not clearly stated. But when you put verse upon verse upon verse, you're sensing now that the Spirit is involved in the joy in Christ. Now, I'll build that case a little bit later on. The point of the matter is they were confused about what was happening here because they knew that Christ was going to go. You remember from our other teaching where they came to Christ thinking that Christ was going to set up a whole new kingdom here because that's their Jewish background, knowing the Messiah was going to come and then set up the rule. And then they're finally getting it together that no, he's not, he's going to die again. So now what is going to... I thought we'd have joy when he'd set up the kingdom and we might even have some special places on the kingdom here in Jerusalem with him being the head guy. And now they don't have that joy any longer. So maybe you're facing some of those very same dilemmas where you don't have that same kind of joy because of confusion in your life. That's pretty normal. But if you want to know what to do to build your faith and to move from the state of confusion, because you know when you have confusion, you don't have peace, you don't have stability, you don't have a sense of place, confusion is going on. You know what I would encourage you to do? To do what happened right here. You go to the Lord. Go back to the passage again, and here's what happened. You'll notice that these guys began to talk to one another. Some of the disciples then said to one another. If it was me, I might have said, well, the Lord just said that. I don't know what he's talking about. Let's go ask him. None of those guys said, let's go ask him. What they did is they kind of got together and they tried to discuss it and cuss over it and figure out what in the world's going on over this thing here. Now, it's not wrong to go to other Christians. And I'm not against Sunday schools and connection groups and small groups and all of that. But I sometimes think that it could be a breeding ground for one another's ignorance. Because while you do talk to one another, you want to go to a study. You want to be a part of a group that while they are talking, they are going back to the scriptures and they're saying, what does the word of God have to say? Let's go back to the passage. It goes on to say, so while they were saying all this, what is this saying about him going away? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this that I said, and what I just said, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me? He's simply saying, You wanted to know, why didn't you come to me? Why don't you ask me? So let me make it real simple for all of us here. You're experiencing some challenges in your life right now, some unknowns and some confusion. 
When you're going through that, I know that at that moment you're not experiencing that sense of peace and, and place, that there's a lack of joy. My strong suggestion would be you go to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't know why this is happening. I, I'm, I'm confused about what's happening here. I don't understand what's happening, but I want to. I want to know. So you're like them. They desire to know. They, desire, they just went in it the wrong way. You desire to know. Now you're going the right way. You're saying, Lord, will you reveal truth to me? How I should respond to this situation? Give me peace. How can I make sense of this? What are the biblical principles that should be lived out through my life? You're seeking him. Now watch. If you end with just, I prayed, and now just willy-nilly go, I think we could be in some dangerous territory because now we have to rely upon maybe a foggy verse we studied before. It does not give the Lord the best to work with because the Spirit himself works best with the Word of God. So now what you do is you go to his teaching. Remember, they went and they asked Jesus, and then Jesus said... Well, Jesus isn't going to talk to you and me in our, on our lanai or in our car or somewhere. He's going to talk to us through the Word. So we say, Lord, I'm confused with my life right now. I'm confused with decisions I have to make. I, I own that, but I know that you are not the author of confusion, so I'm going to you and I'm asking you to reveal truth to me through your Word. Now, if you go to a counselor, you go to a Bible study, or you go to the Word yourself, you are wanting to have the Word of God taught to you. Now, this is where Christians will have an easier time understanding it than non-Christians. Christians then can say, yep, there is a God. Yes, he answers prayer. He wants me to pray. He allows me to go through confusion because it draws me closer to him. So he will reveal it to the word. So I now will trust him. And interestingly, oddly, blessing, he will absolutely do that. Now, if you'd like to have it validated, how many of you have been through a dilemma, a confusion in your life that you then said, Lord, I got to give it up for you. Lord, help me. And somehow God gave you the truth through the word and helped you get through that sense of confusion in your life. If that has happened at least once, would you raise your hand? Does that happen? All right, all of you, keep it up, keep it up. Look around because truth is revealed with witnesses and these are witnesses that they can come alongside you to tell you that. Now, let me take it one step further. Did, those people that just raised your hand, was there a sense of like joy, like, wow, I found this. I got the answer. There was a sense of relief, and we'll even take it to the level of peace when you got all of that. That was the end of that. Would you raise your hand if that happened at the end? All right, this is validating that truth. So having confusion is not wrong. It's not dealing with it properly that will. Let's go to the second minor point there, and that is the step. You have confusion, and in this case, I'm talking about the context, there was grief that was going on. There was a level of grief that they had. Now, here was the grief. Let's see if you can see it here. Uh, pick it up at verse 19. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you uh, deliberating together about this, that I said a little while and you won't see me, and a little while you will, and you'll see me? In verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, before, but, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. So he's saying there's going to be a grief there at that time. And the grief will be, I'm saying that I'm here and then you won't see me. And there's going to be that grief. But the kind of grief that you have, match it up against the world. Watch this, this is really, really important. The world is always going to be opposite towards Christian worldviews than what the secular worldview will be. What happened? 
when Jesus was on the cross, everybody, then, uh, everybody, a great many people were celebrating Jesus is now dead. They were very joyful. We finally got rid of the rabble rouser who is now twisting Jewish scripture and now going to build his own little kingdom and be his own king in our, our area here. So therefore, we're glad he is gone. We killed him because when you kill an animal, they can't bite you any longer. Right? So we killed Christ. He can't bite us any longer and we are rejoicing. You are looking at someone who said he was going to uh, bring in the kingdom that was going to do great and mighty miracles and do all of this great stuff and all of a sudden he's dead now you're grieving because your leader's gone now again a dead animal can't lick you okay can't help you so now our leader is gone now you're grieving he says so you're going to have a sense of grief at that time but now here's what he said but later on you will have joy and that joy is going to be watch when he resurrects before he ascends he does his teaching he ascends up to heaven, and the ultimate joy is when the Spirit of God now comes not to be with them, but to be in them. So now they have the potential, the fullness of God within them. So now they have all of God at that point in Christ in the Spirit. So all of that brings them that ultimate joy. They will have that. Now, why am I making such a big deal over this? In that context, God always teaches us something by doing the extreme knowing that we won't have to go through that extreme. But if he can give you the, the solution, the resolution by the extreme, then you know we can do it no matter what we go through. We didn't have to go to a cross. We didn't have to die like that. We didn't take the sin of the world on ourselves. So whatever you go through, you can make it because he made it through all of that. He is God and he says, I will give all that you need to make it here, whatever you go through. So now we're using this grief thing because that's what he chose to tell them about. So here's my question. I hope this isn't too far for you, but my question is this. What brings a human being grief? What makes you grieve? When you grieve, what do you generally grieve? I'm going to reduce it to a simple sentence. When you grieve, you generally grieve over a loss, right? Someone dies, you grieve. You had a job you really liked, you lost it, you grieve. Some of our senior saints are beginning to grieve, not death, but they're grieving the loss of their health and vitality and energy. And that's hard on them. Some grieve a loss of a child, not so much through death or maybe even through rebellion, but just watching a child go off to school. You have this, I'm, I have this mixed blessing. I'm so glad they're going to school and they're doing something, but I'm going to miss them around the house. That's normal. So you could do that. You go through that time of grief. Now, what gets you through that time of grief? Now, this is very important. What he's telling them here is, oh, you're grieving, so therefore I won't go to the cross and I'm going to give you a lot of good stuff and I'll stay with you. As long as you're alive, I'll always walk with you. He didn't do that. He didn't take away that which was going to bring them grief. What he told them to, basically is, you will get through that grief because there's joy on the other side of that. So just own the future while right now you're having to deal with that grief. So what you're going through right now, whatever might be bringing you that sadness and pain, etc., then that brings us to that third point, which is what we call it resurrection transformation. That means when you get past the grief because you know something else is coming down the road that is much better than that. That is huge, folks. If you have your Bible, hold your place right here. Let's go to Psalms. This is a neat Psalm. Psalm 30, verse 5. Psalm 30, verse 5. This is, again, the thinking is... The transformation of what is to what will be. Let me say that again. It's the transformation from what is to what will be. Now we're looking at Psalm 30. Verse 5 says this, referring to the Lord Jehovah. For the Lord, for his anger is but for a moment. Now that in itself is going to preach because that tells me that the Lord can get angry, I can get angry. The difference is 
my anger needs to be his anger in order for my anger to be righteous anger. And you'll also notice this, that it wasn't an explosive anger based upon an impulse. If you look at scripture, it is all a brewing anger that comes and then it doesn't last forever. It's done and over with. But now that's not the point I want to make in the verse. I just wanted you to know that so when you see this, God got angry? Yeah, he does get angry. What does he get angry at? Sin. It is but for a moment. Now here's the... His favor, though, is for a lifetime. Anger, momentary. Favor, lifetime. Now go with me. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. That's telling you that you may be in darkness right now, but every day of our life, the sun will come up until the time the Lord says that's over. So for right now, you know that no matter what you have, you know that the sun is going to come up. Now, some of you feel like it's just like every day, day after day after day, it keeps piling up more darkness of problems and challenges. That's true. Some of you might be on the backside of your night that at any moment you're going to start seeing the daytime. My dad did this physically with me. I am, um, when I was younger, I, ele- younger elementary, between 8 and 10, something like that, I, I used to have nightmares. But my nightmares, I would wake up and I would thought, quote, the boogeyman is somewhere in the room. And my mom and dad would not allow a light to be put on. And some people put a light on and maybe that's what they should have done, but they didn't. So I was afraid of who was under the bed, who was in the closet, what was that sound that was banging up against my window. And so there would be many nights I would slowly, as slowly as I could creep out of bed, I would go into the little um, family room area and I would sit there on this little hassock and just kind of look around because I felt safer, closer to my parents' room than into my own bedroom where I was all alone in this dark house. But when I got out there, a little bit more light was there. And I would stay there for hours until I got so tired, I would somehow, something happened, triggered, I would go back to bed and I'd fall asleep. My dad heard about that. And he knew that I was scared. Now, there's different approaches. My, my dad was just a simple construction guy, loved his son dearly. And so he said, okay, I know what I'm going to do. So he would wake me up about 5, 4.35 in the morning. I'd still get up early now. And he would sit on the edge of my bed and he says, Stan, come with me. And he would take me in his pickup truck, his paint truck, and we would go all the way to the beach. And we would be at the beach. It was still dark. And we would sit there. And this was now in Florida, not here. And we would be facing the east, as you would well know. And he would say, now I want you to watch. And all of a sudden, you'd have a little break of gray as dawn and dawn and dawn and dawn. And then we would watch the sun pop up out of the horizon. And it would now begin to flood us with the warmth of the morning. And then we would swim in, this, in the beach where it was no, no waves. It was like a lake, like glass out there. And he said, now Stan, I want you to know, no matter how scared you get at night, the morning is coming that's going to throw a light on your whole world that you'll be all right. You will be safe. And so that verse, whenever I read that, I think about what my dad did to remind me that no matter how dark my day will be in life, whatever I might go through, family, fitness, friends, foes, finances, whatever, whatever that is, no matter how dark it gets, there will be a dawn coming. And it, watch, it will happen in, in my life. I can't define the dawn. Not every morning you're going to see the sunball up. You may see the glow of it above a cloud. You may see gray and never see the sun because there's so many clouds and rain, but it's there. So I want you to know that you're going to begin the process of, of accepting God's joy is to 
do deal with the confusion. Realize that there's going to be some grief, but then remember that there's going to be that transformation from the resurrection. Now, I have a couple thoughts for you to remember, then I'll move to my next major point, and that is, I call it substitution. We don't want to have substitution in our life. We want to have transformation. A Bible teacher by the name of Warren Wiersbe wrote on this subject about how many times parents will substitute broken toys for their kids all the time, replacing, 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 so the kids always have to have the best, the greatest, the goodest, all of this kind of stuff. And he said that that can breed immaturity rather than taking what you have and trying to fix it. Taking what you have and accepting it for life. Accepting the fact that you might not get another toy and this is all you get, but that's okay. Life goes on and you won't die. And I'm wondering that sometimes in our life, we either had parents like that or we got in a stage where we could do that. Whether you had money or you had plastic, and so you kept using plastic to do that, we began to take the things that were unhappy in our life and we substituted stuff, thinking that that will bring us joy, only to find that they were broken, they got stolen, or lost, whatever that is. And, and I'm, if I can make it even more practical, how many times we go through some dark times and we abandon our mate? We run from job to job. We trade cars in every two or three years. We have to have the latest electronic widget. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Thank you.